0: I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies, bad movies, movies that we loved, and movies that we hated. This podcast is offered absolutely free and with no outside advertising. So if you like what you hear, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. You can find a link to do so at com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Jacob Kruger and thank you for tuning in to a very special episode of the Write Your Screenplay podcast. This is our 100th episode. And I'm so incredibly excited, proud, and grateful to all of the listeners that have made this possible for hundred episodes. And so I was thinking, what am I going to do for my hundredth episode? I want to do something special. So I decided to go back to the source. For that reason, I'm going to be interviewing today my mom, Audrey Sussman. And I'm excited to talk to my mom on this podcast for a couple of reasons. First, my mom taught me everything that I know as an artist. I'm the only writer in America whose Jewish mother found out that his sister was going to be a doctor and whose response was, oh my God, but you could have been an opera singer. (laughs) So I am incredibly lucky to have had a mother who supports my artistic life. And that's something that that a lot of people don't get. In addition to that, my mom taught me everything I know about writing. And, And not because my mom is a writer, but because my mom is a hypnotherapist. Her work is about the stories that we tell ourselves, not on the conscious level, but on the subconscious level and how those stories take us on journeys of change and how we can actually change who we are by changing the stories. In this way, my mom taught me, first off, how to induce a trance in a reader, how to allow a reader to experience a fictional story as if it was real. She taught me how to use image and sound and feeling and the other modalities that allow writing to feel real and stories to feel real. She showed me how to build structure, how the human mind puts structure together. She taught me how to do rewriting, not by how to rewrite a script, but by how to rewrite your life, by how to actually change the way you tell yourself the story of your life, not by making it fake, but by finding different layers and different values to the truth. Another reason I'm very excited to have my mom here is she teaches classes at the studio. She teaches two different classes here. She teaches the inner game, which is our class about how to take care of the inner challenges to your writing, those subconscious challenges, the fears, the confidence, the procrastination, and also how to connect to your characters on a more profound level. And she teaches our writing lab, which is our experimental laboratory, uh, where we really push the edges of how writing works. So Thank you, Audrey, so much. It's weird to call you Audrey, but thank you, Mom, (laughs) so much for joining us here today. And
1: I am really delighted to be here. And I was listening you tell the story of how you learned from me. And it's interesting because all I was doing was being a mom who knew how to listen That just was natural. It was just such a natural way of interacting where you're always looking for the good in the person. You're always figuring if a person's feeling a certain way, especially my child, there must be a reason for it. Looking for those stories that you might have been telling yourself, that was just how I parented. And I was always looking for the good. Sounds like you do the same with your students. I hear you when you
0: teach. That is probably the most valuable thing that I think that you can learn as a writer, which is it's so easy to find the bad. You know, if we ever said to another child what we say to like our little inner artist child, someone would be calling child services immediately and learning how to be a good parent to that creative child, you know, because we do we do need to be a parent to that child. We can't neglect that child and leave that child out in the wilderness or that child will experience a lot of the negative things that happen to artists. We have to be a parent to that child. We have to help guide that child towards the places that they need to go creative to learning the skills that they need to learn to succeed. But a lot of us get way too aggressive with that child. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: I think of a story of a parent who you know, plants some seeds in the ground and they're supposed to be flowers and three days go by and the parent is like, well, why aren't these flowers yet? And they dig them up and they're still seeds, covers them up, waters them, next day waters them. A week goes by and the parent is like, what's going on here? Where are the flowers? They start stamping on it. That's sometimes what we do to ourselves is like, why don't I have this done? Why didn't I write the pages I said I would? And instead of like just watering it and saying, hey, let me just spend five minutes doing something, 15 minutes, let me look for the good. We're stamping on it because we're angry that the flower hasn't bloomed. And it doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah, well, I think that metaphor that you just gave of digging it up is such a powerful metaphor because we we do this to our scripts all the time, right? It's like you start something and it's something you believe, but it's it's in an early form. It's still a seed, it's not a plant yet. Or you expect it to be a flower, but it turns out it's a beautiful tomato plant. Instead of trusting that the material is going to take the shape that it needs to take, sometimes we end up just digging it up or reinventing it or throwing it out or giving up on it or trying to shape it into something that it
1: doesn't want to be. You know, it's funny, when I was a kid, I used to write poetry. Now, I never thought much about it. I never thought it was good or bad. I just wrote. And that's the freedom of a child to just, who knew that this was poetry? It was beautiful poetry. Some of it was a little deep and sad, but I look back on it as an adult and I said, oh my, if I sat down to write with all that, you know, the stuff we do to ourselves as adults, I wouldn't have had that beautiful poetry which makes me think about i call them filters through which we see life you know if you write something you think it's great and then you look at it the next day and you're like oh this is a piece of trash don't throw it away because three weeks or or a year from now you might look at that and you're like oh my god did i write this even daily our own filters change
0: yeah, and it's interesting because that happens with feedback as well. Most scripts that go out there aren't really ready to go. Um most people rush it, you know, they still have the seed and they're trying to pretend it's the plant. It's very easy not to put enough time in as a gardener to kind of see the beginning and go like, well, I'll just uh, you know, let me duct tape and chewing gum some leaves on there and We're just going to pretend it's full grown. But every once in a while you have a script that really is ready to go and and where you really have done the work and you have created something that's beautiful to yourself and that is surprising to you in some way that maybe goes even beyond what you expected it to do. And sometimes that happens. You have to recognize that other people have filters too. You're going to get a lot of very negative feedback sometimes. It's important to recognize as an artist that – You know, if you let all that feedback bounce you around, if you react to every bit of advice and every bit of feedback, and and don't get me wrong, like I believe in mentorship. I would be nowhere without my mentors. You know, that's what we try to provide here at the studio is that kind of mentorship so that you have people to bounce ideas off of. But there's a big difference between bouncing ideas and being told what to do. And there's a big difference between the kind of feedback that opens a door for you and the kind of feedback that tries to force you to do something that serves somebody else's filters but not necessarily your own
1: yeah and that's one of the things in the inner game that we're doing if any artist knows that core is safe the core of who they are is safe it's so much easier to hear feedback because it's not about you and one of the things we're looking at is insecurities that come up. And, you know, I'm sure all parents, when they're teaching their own children, try their best. But yet sometimes the criticalness of the parent gets taken on by us as we're adults. And so in the inner game, what we're looking at is how do we change that voice in the back so that you know you're safe no matter what. And then you could hear what we call criticism or whatever, take in the parts that work and still stay true to your voice and what you believe.
0: Yeah. I always think of it like uh, going to the ocean, right? It's wonderful to get wet, but you can't take the whole ocean home with you. And so I always feel like when I'm getting feedback, I want to let the waves wash over me. It's a process like all writing. It's a process of trust, right? Where you need to trust that the parts that you hold on to, the parts that actually seep into your clothes or that actually get you wet, those are the parts you need right now. And sometimes that means letting other parts wash back out to sea, That doesn't mean that they won't be really valuable things to learn later, but there's a trust process that happens that the sea is going to bring those ideas back to you. That if you just stand there or you just keep on pursuing your art, those waves will keep coming in.
1: Oh my goodness, I must have been in my late 20s and I was taking a class. And every week, I would just argue with the instructor. And I was like, but this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. At week number six, she said probably the same thing. And I said, well, why didn't you say that five weeks ago? And she said, but I did. Either she changed the wording slightly, or finally, I was ready to hear it.
0: I had a teacher like that, too, um, Joe Blaustein, who is a wonderful painter that I was lucky enough to study with in Los Angeles. And Joe used to come around and I learned a lot about feedback from Joe because Joe would never tell you what to do. Joe would come around. He'd look at your painting and he'd be like, "Just take a look at this area right here." And you'd be like, "Oh, cool." And you'd you'd work on that area. And he'd come back. he around. He'd point to the same area and be like, "Just take a look at that area right here." You'd be like, "I already looked at that area." And then he'd come back and be like, "Just take a." And by the time you would be like, "I looked at that area. I did everything with that area." And he'd come around the last time and be like, "Just look at that area." And you'd be like, "Oh." Oftentimes we want these quick fixes, right? We get so many calls here at the studio for like, I just want a script consultation. Just tell me if it's any good. You know, we'll do a script consultation if someone wants it, but I always try to talk people out of it because what we need is not the one quick fix. What we need is to give ourselves room to actually grow as an artist, to actually come back to that spot again and again and have the person to keep guiding our eye back to that same spot so that we can actually expand who we are and, and how we are and actually build our our skill sets Every script that you work on is like a little awkward baby in some way, you know, and it doesn't know how to walk yet and it drools on itself and it's chubby and it can't really speak right and it cries a lot, but you love it because it's your baby. And then over time, you know, you nurture it, you help it grow, but you're still seeing this as your baby and you're seeing all the beautiful things about it, but you're also seeing the vulnerability. You're imagining who it's gonna be when it grows up, but you know maybe it's not totally grown up yet. And there reaches that point where you have to be like, okay, that baby's got to leave the nest and it's got to go on its own journey. And that's a hard thing for writers.
1: And again, back to the parenting metaphor, nobody's perfect. So parents make mistakes. Even the best parent in the world is going to make mistakes. If we could learn, we literally can go back and repair some of the the negative stuff that happened. And it's like reparenting your own you, the younger you, because you've lived it. You know how it felt when it wasn't done the way that would have been best.
0: You know, we're parents to our characters as well. Just like a child is a part of you, your character is a part of you, right? It's a little piece of you. We want to be the parent that nurtures that character and accepts them for whoever they are. But because we fear that that character is a reflection of us, sometimes we really try to manipulate That character, right? Or we're like, okay, you're going to grow up and you're going to be straight and you're going to become a lawyer and, you know, like you're going to go to Yale. You know, sometimes we have these expectations that we put on our characters that don't actually allow our characters to show us who they really are. If you find yourself manipulating your character, if you find yourself forcing your character to be something they're not, But you know that you need your character to end up somewhere. You know like, hey, this is a film noir and eventually some noir stuff's got to happen. But right now my character just wants to like sing songs and make jokes. How do you find a balance there? How do you point that character in the right direction without manhandling
1: There's like 10 different ways of doing that. I think I'll start with one that just happened to me this morning. I was working with one of my private clients, and we were doing parts work, where you look at what the part, which is the character, is trying to do. And she said, I don't like what that part just said. And I said, okay, would you be willing to tell me what she says well the part says it's trying to get attention and that's not me I don't want to be getting attention and I said stop let's not judge it let's ask the part what it is about attention that it's trying to do and it turned out that the part was not trying to get attention by having anxiety the part was trying to say pay attention to this thing that's happening in your body so that's one way of asking the question a little different.
0: Is really paying attention to what's really going on for that kid.
1: When I work with writers, my intent is to help them to form better stories that work for them to enhance their life rather than the negative. But in the character, that's a perfect place. As long as you can get to, I wonder what the story is, not the fact, but the story is that that character is telling themselves. Because I guarantee that whether it's you or your character, if a character is doing something that seems like, why are you doing that? There's a reason. And instead of judging it, you go, huh, I wonder what my character is trying to gain By doing X, Y, Z. And boy, you're going to get some great stories. And there's where you want to use your stories and the struggle.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because you're kind of pointing to the idea of super objective, right? Like you're pointing to the idea of when your character does something strange or when your character does something that you don't expect or something that you might judge, that if you can uncover what's actually underneath there, that might actually be the key to your whole script, right? That might be actually understanding not the little objective, like I want a cup of coffee, but the super objective, that huge subconscious thing driving your character actually
1: is. That's where you can use some hypnotic languaging. Some people like to call it meditation or whatever. I I like to guide it a little bit more so that we could actually get underneath and find out what is that character, what is the, what do you call it, the super objective? And by using a little bit of hypnotic languaging, you could get to that story a lot easier because when you try to do it just on the conscious level, it won't make sense. But if you get underneath, like you said, to the super objective, and there's techniques to do that.
0: Well, I mean, it's such an issue in screenwriting. We don't really have this issue. You know, if you take a novel writing class, if you take a playwriting class, poetry class, painting class, literally any other art, you are not going to run into this issue that we run into in screenwriting. And, and the problem is, it's just not enough screenwriting classes are taught by actual screenwriters. So many of them are taught by critics and by professors, because they're, working screenwriters make a lot of of money, and most of them don't have to teach. And there are people who love teaching, and we're lucky enough to have some of them here. But a lot of the people who are teaching screenwriting are not the people doing it, or who are the people who are struggling to do it, not the people who are doing it successfully. And so you get these very rational approaches, right? These very formulaic structures, this has to happen on this page, and this is a rule that you have to follow. And You know, when you look at the movies that are coming out, the ones that are successful, the ones that people love, those movies never pay attention to the rules at all. But a lot of the people teaching screenwriting are teaching rule 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 and what ends up happening is they they do all the teaching for the conscious brain but of course the real writing happens on the subconscious level and it creates a real conflict for writers
1: because the exciting writing is happening on the unconscious the subconscious level the boring stuff is usually what comes out of the conscious yes
0: yeah, because so much stuff that doesn't make sense is where the real heart of the story lies it's like in your life we all do stuff that doesn't make sense and we all want to dismiss it but if we actually look at it that's that's what allows you to make a big change. was what allows you to grow.
1: You said something in one of your lectures. The, uh, I was listening to it, and I might be paraphrasing it incorrectly, but what you said was just as we go through life, we don't think, oh, I'm in the midpoint. No, we just live life. Then, at the end, we could look back and say, oh, that was just a middle. And that really struck home with me. is So much of the time when, when someone's writing, they're trying to fit it into that formula. And we don't live like that, and neither do our characters
0: whenever somebody asks can I do this in a script I always say if it happens in life it can happen in a movie And if it doesn't happen in life, then it can happen in a movie, but you better be careful because there's a good chance that you're not building something true. I know for me, that's the hardest part of being a writer, especially when you're not experienced, it's a little easier. Just to be truthful, we were talking about Joe earlier, Joe Blaustein. Joe reached this point where he was obsessed with obliterating his own art. Joe was like 95 years old when I was studying with him. And he would paint these beautiful paintings, and then he would paint over them with house paint, and then do another layer, and then paint over. And I asked him why he was doing that, and he said, at this point, in five minutes, I can paint a picture that makes you want to cry. He said, it's so easy for me now that it's not challenging me as an artist in order to do something real now, I have to push myself beyond that place where my craft works, what's beyond what I already know how to do. And I thought that that was such an interesting lesson for art. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how hypnosis works and how it relates to writing. And also, what is some of that stuff that gets in our way? Like what causes procrastination? How can you use hypnosis and how can you use writing to actually clean that stuff up?
1: So what I do hypnotically, we figure out what the fear is about because there are are wounds that happen in childhood so we go back and kind of heal those so that you could feel great about yourself whether the piece of thing you've done is beautiful or terrible but when you know that no matter what you're enough you can write freely the way to prepare hypnotically is you know you have to set the foundation we talk differently to the unconscious part of the mind than we would talk to the logical brain how do you talk to get in there because if you have a program, let's say, that says this isn't good enough, that works to a certain degree. But when it starts limiting you, then it's not working anymore. So we need to then be able to talk the language of the unconscious to fix erroneous programs that aren't working
0: what i'm hearing are actually two things at the same time the one is like what are the belief systems that you have in yourself you call them programs the programs that you have in yourself that cut you off from your characters or your best ideas or your best lines of dialogue or your best images but also that cut you off from your career goals or your dreams or like calling that producer or sending that script or realizing the opportunity that's right in front of you I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about procrastination, because I don't know a single writer, myself included, who doesn't struggle with that. And I know you do so much great work with that in the inner game. And so I I wonder if you could talk about what causes it and how do you stop it?
1: A lot of times procrastination is about fear. It could be fear of failure. It could also be fear of success. Cognitically, what we do is we ask questions of ourselves that actually get to the unconscious part, the answer that comes out, people are like, oh my God, that's what it is, rather than the logical answer, which unfortunately, when people ask, why am I procrastinating? They get, well, you're being lazy, or you don't care enough about this. If you cared, you'd do it. That's never the real answer. If you're procrastinating, it's usually because there's something that you're telling yourself, or there's some fear, or you're giving yourself an image of it's not good enough, And we all do it. And the more that something matters to you, the more you probably will procrastinate because it really matters. Step one is to identify what's causing the procrastination. To do that, you just take a breath, focus in and notice where in your body you're feeling because there is a feeling that goes with procrastination. What I'm doing is I'm saying, let's get away from the judgment because it's never true. You know, it's easy to say, oh, just accept yourself. But people don't know how to do that. So instead of just accepting yourself. I say okay take a breath let's just focus inside and see where you feel that feeling what is the feeling and maybe the feeling is I'm angry with myself for procrastinating okay we start there or maybe you're so in tune that you say like my heart is like tense I'm so afraid that it won't be good enough a lot of times with procrastination especially with creative people is they're afraid somebody else will be disappointed sometimes they're afraid they will be disappointed but more often they're afraid of disappointing someone else and they have these conversations going on in their brain that literally are horrible. It's like negative talk radio is going on. Let's, so we change the channel to some nice positive talk. I'm not saying we should coddle ourselves. I'm saying that instead of the negative stuff that isn't working, let's see what's really going on. I know
0: a lot of artists have a belief that if i were to heal myself that i couldn't create my art anymore if the pain went away then i couldn't write these beautiful scenes or if i let go of that sadness or if i ever let go of that relationship that is still torturing me or if i ever forgave my parent that they would somehow lose that creative connection that's obviously not what i believe but i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that belief system and like how can a person how can a writer heal themselves emotionally without losing their access and their drive creatively.
1: I've had many writers and actors say, but if I'm healed, maybe I won't be able to be the actor I am or the writer I am. You don't have to be a suffering artist to write beautifully. You've already had your experience. You could always dip down into that experience if you choose to, even after you've healed it. The difference is you don't have to struggle with it every day. One of the people who I'm working with um, right now, she's a beautiful writer. And she had a very sad thing happen to her when she had twins and one of them died very young, I think three weeks. Every day she cried for 17 years, every single day. It was getting in the way of even her writing her story, which is what she was trying to do. We literally healed that. She still can feel sad. She will never forget that baby. The difference is she's having a life where she's not struggling and suffering. And now she's writing her story and it's flowing because the trauma of it isn't getting in her way.
0: There's a difference between living it and accessing it.
1: I had one actress, she was playing a rape scene. And she was accessing some old junk that happened to her. That was it getting in the way. It was really re-traumatizing her again and again. Most people who write are going to have had some trauma in their life. The creative part of them has led them to be different in some way. So they're not going to fit into the mold that maybe teachers expected. So there's going to be some heartache. They could always tap into that, but they don't have to struggle with it every single day. If you believe that you're not enough, that is going to get in the way of your writing. If you know you're enough, but you can go back and remember how it was for that six-year-old whose parent is screaming at them when you thought you were doing something nice, you could access that in a minute.
0: Some writers struggle with emotions that they can't access, places where they go numb, they can't connect to the feeling of the character or even positive emotions. Like, well, I'm trying to write this character who's primarily positive or joyful, but I don't know how to access that where the character feels like cut off from them. How can hypnosis be used to access emotions that are otherwise cut off?
1: I had a client who I was trying to access her feeling good about herself. And she said, there's nowhere in my life. I said, how about brushing your teeth? She said, I don't even do that well. We were just trying to access something where we could anchor the feeling. She finally came out with a 30 second clip in her life where she was holding her mom's hand, licking an ice cream cone and feeling happy. Now, 30 seconds later, it didn't stay that way, but she was able to access it. Sometimes there's so much trauma that joy isn't available until you clean out the trauma. On the other hand, sometimes the trauma is so great that trying to get in touch with, let's say your character's sad, and you just go numb. Well, if there's so much sadness in your life, as soon as you approach it, you know that it's going to create real emotional distress, you're going to go numb or dissociate from it. So by hypnotically going back and actually releasing, not just the one event of sadness, think of a string of pearls, and each pearl represents an emotional state. And let's say this particular one is sadness, and you're able to unknot the string at the end of the emotional state of sadness and hypnotically pull the string out all that sadness disappears. It doesn't mean you won't be sad in your life. You just won't have that vibration of all that sadness. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I love it because what you're really talking about is structure. An event happens when you're young in a movie, what we call the inciting incident or in a television show, right? the The end of the cold open, right? Something happens that creates a feeling or that leads you to make a choice or You know, I'm never going to let that happen again. That sends us off into a new movement where another action happens that resonates up against that and then another one and another one. And sometimes in rough drafts, it's like all those pearls are disconnected. There's one pearl that feels like joy and there's one pearl that feels like sadness and there's one pearl that feels like triumph and they don't feel like they're connected at all. In writing through structure, we string those pearls together so that each event of your story starts to speak to the ones before and that by the time you get to the, climax or the catharsis all those pearls on that string are all resonating together and that's what we build and that's why we rewrite and I've always thought what's really cool is like we have the same job but we do an opposite thing right like my job is to connect those pearls your job is to connect the pearls and the positive ones but to take the ones where we have too much vibration vibrating from the present all the way back to birth and to disconnect those pearls
1: I also look at it when the individual writing has a string of pearls of such pain, it's going to make it difficult to get in touch with your your character's pain because it's too heavy. So when we release the writer's pain string, they still know what pain feels like. Then you could weave them together into a whole. And and again, for the characters, we don't heal their pain. That's what the movie hopefully is doing is some sort of resolution towards the end or non-resolution in our own life. If we have too much heaviness, it's it makes it that much harder to get in touch with our own characters. And one of the fun things, that like in the inner game, when we do a hypnotic going back to the child self, we're able to actually come up with writing that flows without any effort. It's just blowing because you're writing what your younger self is seeing hearing feeling doing and you're just letting your pen write what's really cool is that from this can be journaling
0: but last time i sat in on the class we did an exercise that was incredible where we were writing from personal experience but we were passing that experience on to our character and I found that that an incredibly transformative exercise because even though I was writing a character who was a, a girl, you know, from a different time, it was such an exciting way to tie her experience to my own and to feel like the part of me that she represented.
1: When I was doing that exercise in our class, you know, I believe in past lives, so I actually took an object, a tangible object, and use that object to help everyone in the classroom to track back all the way to great-great-great-great- great-grandmom or granddad or whomever. Access those emotions. It's funny because I didn't say now your character's going to do this. I just pulled you back and then you wrote and it was funny how everyone in the class ended up having some interesting writing that overlapped a little bit, even though we all had different experiences. So talking it is so much harder than when you're in state. In a trans state, the unconscious lets it all happen and it's never journaling. It's really writing a character from the emotional core. So it sounds like journaling, but it's so not.
0: We should probably do a different podcast where we just like, we should just like watch Get Out together and just watch Everything Wrong About Hypnosis. Oh my God, I'm thinking, what's the Ben Stiller movie? Uh, uh, Zoolander. <laughs> watch Zoolander together. I don't think in the history of filmmaking, Anyone's ever seen real hypnosis. Yes,
1: Vangali, one of the old ones where he yeah. makes people do his bidding. Yeah. It's not true.
0: I think that all screenwriters and all writers are hypnotists. I think that we're hypnotizing ourselves when we write. I think that's why when we're really in the zone, we lose track of time. You know, sometimes we feel like we didn't even do the writing, like it just flowed through us. Or they talk about the muse, which I just see as like the inner artist child. We also, we're all hypnotists in that we create words that people translate into experience and that we allow people to weep over characters who don't exist to get their adrenaline pumping over chase sequences that we know are not real, to feel shame for things that people do that we know they've never done, and and to actually process those emotions as if they were real. As a writer, you're already a hypnotist, and you're already a self-hypnotist. But I think a lot of writers don't actually realize that that's what they're doing. A lot of beginning writers don't even know how to get to that place where that real writing can happen. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about like, what are some of the misconceptions of hypnosis? And what's the, how does the hypnosis that you use in your classes, how does that work?
1: Let's just call hypnosis or self-hypnosis creating an altered state of consciousness. Anytime you go into your own brain and start making up stories about something, you are in a trance state. So hypnosis is something we do normally. I doubt if there's a person alive who doesn't at some point have some thoughts going through their mind that aren't happening right now. They're in a trance state. So you could either use a trance state purposefully or you just let it run and then you're not using it purposefully. So if you take the mystery out, you can create a trance state purposefully. And use it for different things. You could use it for healing. You could use it for writing. You can be awake and aware. There's another type of trance state, which most people are more familiar with, which is called the classical hypnosis, where you are getting sleepy, you are getting relaxed. I use them for healing. They're wonderful. You mentioned mantras before. I can't tell you how many times a client will come in and say, for five years, I've been telling myself this mantra. And it's a positive one. It's all said in the positive, but it's not working. Well, the reason it's not working is not everything inside is in alignment for believing that. For a mantra to work, they can. You have to get rid of the stuff you don't really believe. You could say it a million times. That's cognitive. You could even go into a trance state and build it. But if there's something that's not accepting it, we have to fix that part. There's another kind of hypnosis, which I love doing, where we actually go out to the future. The reason I do that is we can check the ecology, what we call ecology of it. So I had one of the writers who I was working with in a group, she wanted her movie to win big awards and she saw herself on stage accepting the awards and she was so excited and she felt so respected and I said, okay, go out there and see how that is and she went out in her future image which was all positive positive. and then she came back and i said okay what happened something changed there She she's yeah but i feel like i won't be able to do it again you think you have built the future that you you want but if there's something still broken a hole inside that still needs to be fixed the tangible object doesn't give you what you thought it would so hypnotically we could find out anything that has to be corrected too
0: And and it's funny because that relates to structure too, right? Sometimes you write that beautiful ending and you don't feel anything. We think, oh my God, I must have messed up that scene. But sometimes it's not the scene. Sometimes it's the ecology of the script. It's the way all the other scenes work together to either support that scene or not support that scene or contrast with that scene. So it's interesting that you're talking about ecology in that way. Because you really do a couple things. You do you do Ericksonian hypnosis.
1: Neurolinguistic programming or neuro- neuroscience to reprogram the actual neural net, the way you react.
0: Yeah. So classical hypnosis is...
1: Suggestion, relaxation, it could be healing, very good stuff.
0: A lot of people's experience in classical hypnosis is like seeing a stage hypnosis. When I got my training in hypnosis, they showed us this video. Every stage hypnotist has a couple of tricks because a lot of people think, oh, hypnosis is mind control. And it's the opposite. In a state of hypnosis, you actually have much more control over your mind than you do in your everyday life. Because you're actually in touch with your subconscious as opposed to just your subconscious running a program around you. But they they basically basically showed this guy and the stage hypnotist had hypnotized him to think that he didn't have a butt every time he sat he went to sit he would be just tickled to realize that he couldn't because he didn't have a butt the guy also made him forget the number 6 so he would count his fingers and he kept on ending up with 11 and he just could not figure out how he was ending up with 11. So this guy was incredibly hypnotized. And then they did this, this session where they, they had everyone lick an imaginary ice cream cone. They had them all having an orgasm with every lick. We were watching this line of people and they are all you know in a state of ecstasy. And here's the same guy who forgot he had a butt, who forgot the number six. He's just licking a pretend ice cream cone and nothing's happening. They stopped the tape on him and they said, okay, Why was this guy not hypnotizable to do that? And everyone had all these guesses, and they finally said, no, his daughters were in the audience. He was totally comfortable forgetting the number six or forgetting yet a a butt in front of his daughters, but he wasn't comfortable. You were talking about ecology. It didn't fit his belief system. Probably a lot of my listeners don't know this, but growing up with a hypnotist, you know, if I had a problem as a kid, we didn't just talk about it. My mom would hypnotize me and I would feel better. (laughs) And so...
1: Let me just break into like... Interesting because people don't understand hypnosis. It's not like controlling... I would just ask you certain questions and you would go in there and fix it yourself. Although it sounds like I was fixing. No, I was just getting you in touch with your own creative inner self that fixed it better than I ever could. Which
0: is exactly what we try to do for our students here. That's what ProTrack is about. It's not about having some wise person tell you what to do. It's about having somebody guide you to really understand what your goals are and then to show you the tools that you need to do it. The goal here is like to help you get in touch with your belief systems. Not to change your belief system. Hypnosis is terrible for getting people to do things they don't want to do. I can't hypnotize you to clean your room if you don't want to clean your room if messiness doesn't matter to you. But to hypnotize somebody to do something that they do want to do or something's getting in the way, that's where hypnosis is so powerful because once you tap into the real belief systems, the junk that gets in the way is so minor in comparison.
1: So just to give you an example, like I saw a hypnosis show where the guy was dancing like a ballerina and he's quite good. If his inner system was, that is ridiculous, I'm not going to do it, he would not, I don't care how great the hypnotist was, this was a very outgoing guy who probably always loved dancing and was told boys don't do this and now he has an opportunity you know as a hypnotist we always kid around and we say yeah and he's dancing like a ballerina because he because she made me do it because he's freed up but the reality is if it wasn't right for him you- I was actually watching a show and I don't go up for hypnosis shows because I am a really good hypnotic subject and I don't want to entertain other people. So I'm sitting in the audience and there's one lady on the stage. She's just not doing anything he's telling her to do. So he says, that's okay. Just sit there, close your eyes, but you're going to have this glass of water, this imaginary glass of water. And every time you take a sip, you're going to get more and more inebriated. You're gonna feel so happy, and you're gonna be laughing. I drink water all the time, I'm, I'm drinking my water. Inside of me, I wanna just crack up, I wanna laugh. I know if I do, he's gonna make me come up on that stage, and I am not coming up on that So I force myself not to react, even though my inner self, I love to laugh. Even then, when the suggestion fit my value system, I would not get up. There's a difference between our values and our beliefs. Let's say I believe in being honest or I believe in taking good care of others. You probably couldn't make me kick a dog no matter what. My value is you're kind to animals and children and people. But my belief system might be different. I've always believed I'm very athletic and very good at things athletic. Also believed I'm very good in math and science. But there are people who believe they're not good in math. Now, that belief can actually be changed, even though their value of being kind or that value doesn't change. Beliefs that don't work can be changed.
0: So a person who believes they're not good at math can actually be hypnotized to feel confident in math.
1: I want to take mystery out of the hypnosis. I cannot say to this person who believes they're not good in math and say, I'm going to hypnotize you and make suggestions that you are going to be a great mathematician. That I don't believe works. We have to actually fix. So instead, we might go back to first grade where this poor kid is learning math and the teacher makes this child stand up in front of the room and the kid can't figure out something. And the embarrassment is so great. From that time on, math became an embarrassment, almost like it brought back that emotion. We can go back to that first grader and fix that. Change the story, change the movie. I always say, let's change the script. You know, in our own lives, we want to change those scripts that don't work. And when we change the script in a hypnotic state, the mind accepts it. And all of a sudden, that's let go. And now we have an opportunity to start finding ways of math becoming easier, if that's important. Well, it's interesting that you're
0: talking about math. A lot of artists believe they're not good at math, but also a lot of artists have had a similar experience with their art. And sometimes it's from a well-meaning teacher. At Dartmouth, there was a novel writing class that I tried to get into. And I kept getting rejected because I was very persistent. I finally got a meeting with that teacher who was just really, well, you know, I just don't think you really have it, but you know, I guess if you keep on applying, I'll let you in. And this person like really didn't believe in me. Thank God I had you and a lot of other people who did. So she didn't actually get in my way at all. Her words didn't resonate in my ecology. It was like, oh, uh, this person definitely doesn't understand my writing. (laughs) You know, instead. but for a lot of people, especially if that had happened young or if I didn't have the support system around me, that one person... Person going like, well, this is really bad, or people don't talk that way, or your work is really disturbing, or, you know, whatever that thing is, even from a well-meaning person, or, you know, some people have this talent, your sister has this talent. Sometimes we actually create these belief systems that don't match our values, where like our value might be about expressing yourself in art, but our belief system might be well, everyone else gets to express themselves. But if I were to express myself, it would hurt people, or people would laugh, or realize I'm a fraud, or whatever that missing thing is.
1: And luckily, like you said, like if a person had learned early that they had to do things by formula, the way the teacher said, they would have had a much different experience than you had when the teacher said, no, no, you don't write. And it's interesting because when you applied to Dartmouth, you sent them a poem in iambic pentameter, I believe. When you wrote that poem, I remember saying to Jake, do you think maybe you should write an essay like what they want? And you said, if they don't like the way I'm applying, then I don't want to go there that's a real sense of self. And it started early. I mean, as a three and four year old, we were painting and you may not remember doing oil painting, but I still have some of them. The belief system was laid very early.
0: What you're saying is to become the person you want to be now, it's not just about what you're doing now. It's about going back and actually doing that work in that little movie in our mind, the way that we watch it, actually doing that rewrite.
1: All our memories are affected by the filters we see them through. We might as well change the stories and the the movies that we have to something that enhances us and makes us successful and feel good about ourselves. And and it's not a false sense of acceptance. The funny thing is, the more positive you feel about yourself, the more you can fail. (laughs) You can take risks because it's not about your core. Like your art teacher, he was able to completely cover over this beautiful art because it wasn't about he needed to fulfill his self. He knew he was already good. Now he was pushing himself. And that's what we want to do with the writers too. We want to push past what they're already doing to even
0: more. I wonder if, um, because we're about to wrap up, I always like to leave my writers with something they can do right now. And I wonder if there's some kind of hypnotic exercise or some kind of technique that, you know, I hope everyone takes the inner game class, but for anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's curious and who's struggling with some kind of block, an emotional block, a procrastination block, any kind of writer's block, or even like a success block, is there something that they can do or they can focus on right now that will be helpful for them?
1: Let's just start with some small little things. I w- wish I could just give them my little magic wand and say, okay, wait, this is has gone. But let's just start with the first step. We want to change the state you're in. Whenever you get stuck, and the fastest way to change your state is using your breath. You know, on my website, there's a breath called the Ha Breath.
0: You can give your website. It's
1: anxietycontrolcenter.com stress-breath, hyphen and there's a seven-minute video guide. But I'm going to give a different breath. So the first thing you want to do is stop, take a moment, close your eyes, focus inward, notice what you're saying in your mind. What are the thoughts? Have a piece of paper so you can write them down. As you're going inside, focusing on whatever it is that you're thinking, notice where the feeling or the block is. So even as you are maybe procrastinating, say, okay, I'm really, and here's the wording you use, I'm really curious what that's about. I'm curious what my unconscious mind is trying to tell me by creating this feeling of anxiety, or this need to get up and wash the dishes instead of writing. Just be curious. So the first step, again, you stop, you breathe, Focus inward and notice any thoughts that you're having. Notice where in your body you're holding any emotion. And also notice any images you might be creating. That's the first step because you're identifying the triggers by doing this. The second step is just begin to notice as you're breathing and you just say it out loud to yourself, huh, I notice my heart is beating quickly. I notice there's multi-thoughts flowing through my mind. I notice there's a tension in my back. Huh, I notice I'm beating myself up, for not doing this. So you're just stating whatever it is you're seeing as you're focusing in, anything you're hearing, anything that you're feeling. As you get more advanced at this, you can actually take the feeling in your body and think, hmm, Let me let that feeling, let's say it's a tightness in your chest, take me back in time to an earlier time. Maybe it was a day, a week, a month ago. Just let the feeling pull you back to earlier events where you had that same feeling. And as you do that, your unconscious mind might be able to take you all the way back to the very root of that feeling. And it may be quite young, usually it is before the age of six. Being very simple and easy, all you're going to do when you get there, if you see that younger you, you're just going to send a smile to that younger self. A smile of acceptance, acknowledging the feelings, letting that younger you know it's not your fault. It's absolutely normal to have emotions and if you want to add one more piece you might even tell that younger you that you'll be there with the younger you. She or he doesn't have to do it alone. That You'll be there to accept and love no matter what. Even if that child who is you makes a mistake you'll still be there to walk by their side and appreciate them just because they are one. So the younger you doesn't have to do anything other than be to be enough for you to love and cherish that younger part of yourself. And after you've practiced that a number of times in different situations, you might then want to journal whatever comes up, because it will give you some deeper understanding. And then if you need more help kind of healing some of this, either come to the Inner Game class or give us a call, and we'll be happy to um, see where we can guide you. All right.
0: Thank you so much, Mom, for <laughs> making me.
1: <laughs> and <laughs>
0: and thank you so much for being here for the 100th podcast. Thank uh, you. That was really Awesome.
1: Thanks for inviting me. And I am so happy and proud of you as my son. No matter what you would have done, I would have been very proud of you. <laughs>
0: I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Again, we make this podcast available totally free and with no outside advertising. So if it was helpful for you, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. It really does make a big difference in keeping this podcast free for everyone. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. For a complete transcript of this podcast or to learn more about studying with me or my faculty in New York City, live online on one of our international retreats or as part of our one-on-one ProTrack mentorship program, you can learn more on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com.